Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Thanks so much for coming. Um, It's great to be here with you. Um, And we're going to be talking mostly about uh, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Um, We might have a chance to look at a little bit beyond that as well. So, of course, if you have a Bible or if it's in your notes, that'd be great to look there with you. So, I think I've got a couple images. I don't know where they are. Yeah, here they are. So, many years ago, back in the 90s when I was in college, uh, we had some friends who were missionary, or went after that, after college, to uh, Hungary to be missionaries. And when they came back, they brought uh, this gift to us uh, that was a poster. Actually, if you could show the second slide here, because this is the actual poster they gave me. It's kind of hard to see a little bit, but they brought this really cool poster. As you can see, it's kind of 19th century kind of style, and it, this is a little shrunk down here. But basically, it shows two different uh, scenarios. One way on the left side where people are entering in and, you know, doing all kinds of bad stuff, at least in a 19th century kind of sense, you know, I mean, they're, you know, people fighting or somebody beating their donkey, right? And, you know, do, doing all these various things, gambling, shooting somebody else, et cetera. And at the top of that, you could see it's obviously a city of destruction and fire. And on the other side, this smaller way is people going to church and doing good things, helping other people. And you can see on the top of that right-hand side, you can see that the celestial city or a heavenly glory. If you go back to the other slide, here's another similar version of it. Both of these happen to be in German from the kind of 1900 or the 1800s mostly. But you can see it's depicting, you know, two different paths, one leading to destruction and one leading to life. Now, what's really cool about this poster that they brought back to me is that it's all in Hungarian, and my Hungarian is probably about as good as your Hungarian is, unless there's somebody here from Hungary, Um, but it's not very difficult to figure out the Bible verse that's printed at the bottom of that poster that they gave me, and it's Matthew 7, 13, and 14, because it's a very these are very famous words from Jesus, like all the Sermon on the Mount is really, that we need to, well, let me just read the verses for you here. Again, 7, 13, and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for gate, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard or difficult that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And maybe you've seen a poster like that. Maybe you have... Um, you know, thought of this, this text this way as well. And the reason this poster exists and the reason um, we think of it that way is that this has been the way that most Christians have tended to just kind of read these verses, that it's describing two ways of life. One way where you do bad stuff, and then the result is you end up in hell and judgment, and one where you do good churchy stuff, you do religious stuff, and therefore you end up with God in heaven. And while I understand that, of course, it does matter what you and I do with our lives, our choices do affect us, and our choices do reflect who we really are, that's for sure. And so there's a very real sense in which those posters are right, that one way of inhabiting the world results in death, and one way of inhabiting the world results in life. I want to suggest to you this morning that that's actually not 
primarily what Jesus is talking about in these verses. So what I want to do for you, and I know you've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is super awesome. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I've spent many, many years of my life studying the sermon, and it is well worth uh, all the time you've put into it. What I want to do is I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 5 and do a super quick overview from chapter 5 up to our verses to show you that there's actually a great consistent message that goes through all of that, this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, that'll make sense of 7, 13, and 14, maybe in a way you haven't thought of before. Now, my wife, Tracy, here is a professional mosaic artist. She has mosaics all over town and other places as well. And she has a big art studio and does big projects, teaches classes. And her, her <clears throat> medium is Italian glass tile. And if you know anything about mosaics, how they work is, you know, she's got these tiny little pieces of glass of different colors that she nips and cuts and, and shapes into certain forms. And they're very beautiful in themselves, but really they matter the most once you put them into the picture. And that's how I like to think about these verses in the Sermon on the Mount, that you have to really think about them as a, they're just a couple short little verses, but they really have their significance. Their meaning comes from seeing how they fit into the larger picture. Or maybe you're like me if you grew up, I, don't, I doubt this still exists, but there was a magazine when I was growing up called Ranger Rick. And anybody Ranger Rick fans? No, okay, sorry. But anyways, there was this mag magazine, you've seen it other places too, where they have these like eye bender puzzles where it's a, it's a picture of something that's like super magnified and you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out what it is and you'd have to be able to you know, zoom back from it to figure out what it is. That's how I think about these verses. I think a lot of times we look at these two verses and we don't think about them in, we have to zoom out from them and say, what in the world is going on in the Sermon on the Mount? What's the big picture that makes sense of this? And I'm going to sum it all up. I'm going to turn back to chapter 5 here for a second. I'm going to sum it all up with the word cardiographic, okay? Then I'm going to suggest to you that the best way to read the whole Sermon on the Mount is in this cardiographic way. And let me show you what I mean. Turn back to chapter 5 or flip back on your phone if you want and just look here. You probably recall, I don't know how many months ago it was when you were in this, but Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with this very famous teaching called the Beatitudes, these statements of what true human flourishing can look like. And if you just look through them, I'm not going to read them all for you, but if you look through them, you'll see that every one of them will really reflects a posture of heart. It reflects a way of not only doing things, it's not just external behavior, but it's who the person is, being a person of poverty of spirit and those who are mourning and meek and hungry and thirsting for righteousness and, and even being merciful and peacemaking, those reflect a certain kind of way of being, that that's your attitude, that's your posture of heart. And verse 9, sorry, verse 8 is one of the most important ones, probably the most important beatitude, those who are pure in heart. So in other words, right at the beginning of Jesus' teachings, he's giving us this cardiographic reading that what it means to follow him is to be a certain kind of person on the inside, all right? Now, let your eyes skip down to the kind of central part of the Sermon on the Mount. You probably spent a fair amount of time in here from 517 to 548. And again, another very famous portion of the Bible and of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches these six different examples about lust and anger and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies. <clears throat> and if you look at them, you'll see that in every case, you have the same cardiographic kind of reading. That is, that what Jesus says here is not only, 
you know, you shouldn't lust or, or not only should you not commit adultery or that you shouldn't murder, but he says there's something more important and deeper underneath that, and that is what kind of person you are on the inside, what kind of heart you have. That's what's going on in 517 to 48. He's not, it's not as if we sometimes might think that <clears throat> Jesus says, well, in the Old Testament, God said, don't commit adultery, and I'm really one-epping it. You think that was hard? Watch this, and I'm going to give you, you can't even lust or anything. That's not what's going on in this interpretation of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, if you look at what God said in the Old Testament, he has always cared about the inner person. And so these, these six examples he gives in 5.17.48 are best understood in a cardiographic way, who you are in the inner person, your heart. And if you look at chapter 6, flipping ahead, chapter 6, verses 1 to 21, which also you spent some time in, you'll see that there's the same thing. You have three examples in the case of giving to help the poor, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. In every case, what's the issue? It's that you and I are so easy to be tempted to live for the praise of men rather than for the praise that comes from God. Right here, it's easy to say praise of men. In broader culture, we'd probably want to say the praise of others, but the acronym on that is a little uncomfortable. So I, I'll just go with, you can figure that out, it's a little early, maybe you didn't get that, but pra praise, of, praise of men we'll go with instead of praise of others, that this is something that drives us so often. It drives so much of what we do is that we're angling, we're always fishing for praise, we're, we're hoping people see us do good things. And so when Jesus gives these teachings, he's not saying that you shouldn't give alms or, or pray or fast. He's saying, yeah, you should do these things, but you've got to look inside. You've got to have a cardiographic reading of doing these good things. You've got to pay attention to what's going on. And if we looked at the rest of chapter 6, we could say the same thing about anxiety and money and into chapter 7 as well. Are you sensing a pattern yet? There's a pattern all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and there is a big idea, and I would sum it up this way, that God sees and cares about your heart. God sees and cares about who you are in the inner person. And that's what heart means in the Bible. It doesn't just mean your emotions. It means who you really are on the inside, your thinking and your heart. God sees and cares about the heart. And th all of this is focused on Jesus offering the life, men, that you and I long for. To be satisfied with your work, to have good relationships, if you're married with children, to be honored to be successful, all the things we long for, Jesus is addressing those things, and most importantly, our relationship with God, and saying you have to pay attention to what's going on on the inside. Now, in light of all that I've said then, just kind of pointing that out, when we land back on 7, 13, and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When we get to those verses, it's remarkable to me that what we often do as Christians is basically we produce that poster. We think of it that way, that we think these verses are saying, okay, now th these are verses saying, if you do bad stuff, if you live in a bad way, that's going to result in destruction. If you live in good ways, that's going to result in life. And that sure seems to be what these verses apparently seem to be saying. But let me just point out a couple of things about them. First of all, what really is the contrast here in these verses. <clears throat> we, may be, we may be tempted to think 
that the contrast is about the many and the few. And that is true, that there are more guys that are still in bed right now than there are here, right? It is true that there are more people who are not Christians than there are Christians. It is true that there are few who find it relative to the many who do. That's absolutely true. But I'd like to suggest to you that the real contrast that Jesus is emphasizing here in verses 13 and 14 is not on the many versus the few, but on the difficulty and on the ease of these two ways. He says his way is the difficult way. His way is the painful way often. His way is the, the narrow way. It's the, it's the pressed down way. It's like you're walking in a, in a cavern, and this is the really tight part of it. His way is this narrow way that you have to go through. That's the contrast. So here's the question. What in the world is this narrow way? What is this narrow way that Jesus says is more difficult and is the way that is necessary to lead to life. Well, to answer that, I'd like you to think with me for a minute about the people that Jesus is actually talking to. Who are the people that Jesus is talking to? And particularly, who are the people that if you read in the, in the, in the rest of Matthew that he's often having conflict with? The people Jesus is giving these teachings to are primarily people who either are Pharisees themselves or are influenced by the Pharisees. Now, when I say the word Pharisee, I know that in English, that's a very negative term. When we hear the word Pharisee, we think bad, legalist, etc. And, and I understand that. That's because they're the ones who appear as Jesus' opponents in the New Testament. However, we need to recognize that the Pharisees in the ancient world, they were the good guys. They were the conservatives. They were the ones who really loved the Bible. They were the ones who loved God's word. They were the ones who were inerrantists. They believed that the Bible was fully inspired. They were the ones who were very pious. They didn't sleep around. They didn't get drunk. They gave a lot of their money. In fact, they were so diligent about giving their money that when they went to Kroger and came home, they took out 10% of even every little spice that they bought and gave that to the temple. They were very faithful people. They're, if you've ever read the kid's Bible, the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, which is, I think, the best kid's Bible, I'd highly recommend it if you have little kids. In, the, in there, the, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Pharisees are called the extra super holy people with like dashes in between. it. And that's not a bad description of them because they were actually the most godly of all the groups of the Jews. They were the most conservative and they were the most faithful to God and his word. But they had a problem. And their problem was a cardiographic one. Their problem was a heart one. And you have to recognize then, so when Jesus says you have to enter by the narrow way, the, he must not be just talking about behavior. Because if you think back to 520, which is, or 5, yeah, 520, which is the most, one of the most important verses in the sermon, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no way you could exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's no way you could be more holy. They were the extra super holy people. So what is the more difficult way and what is the more righteousness way that Jesus is talking about? 
Well, I hope you can begin to guess that from what we just did in our brief overview of the Sermon on the Mount is the same issue is at hand, that God sees and cares about our hearts. He sees and cares about our inner person. This is the way that God deals with us. He doesn't care about all of our external behavior if our heart is not aligned with him. External behavior matters, right? It, it's better to be good, a good person than a bad person for the consequences of it for you and others. But if the heart is not right, Jesus is saying, it does not matter. This is the more difficult way. This is the narrow way, or as I like to say it, the marrow way is the narrow way. That is, the inside of who you are, the inside of your bones, who you really are in the inner person this morning, men, is what God's looking at and cares about. It also reminds me of a story later in the Gospel of Matthew. You may remember in Matthew chapter 19, it's a very famous story where this very wealthy young man, who's probably a Pharisee as well, comes to Jesus. He's very successful. He's very uh, godly. He's very honored in society. He's very financially successful. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lifts, lists off for him the Ten Commandments and doesn't, and that's good. He says, these are good things to do. And the man says, well, what do I still lack? Because he senses that he's not connected with Jesus. He senses that there's something still lacking. And what does Jesus say to the man? You remember? Go and sell all your possessions. Now, that's, it's very important to know that that's not something that Jesus says to very many people at all. In fact, most people don't sell all their possessions. Some do, but most, most people don't. That's not a requirement to be a Christian. Why does he say it to this man? It's because Jesus, who's the great soul doctor, he knows what the man's issue is. He knows that he loves the things of the world more than he loves God. It's a heart problem. And so Jesus offers this man the way to enter into that narrow way, that narrow way to actually pay attention to what he really loves, but he's unwilling. But notice the guy was a good guy on the outside. He was a great guy on the outside. He was honored, respected, wealthy, obeyed all the commandments. But he had a problem still, which was this interior matter of his heart and what he loved more. So once again, Jesus is emphasizing, he's speaking to us today, that we need to pay attention to what's going on on the inside. I also think from the Old Testament of one of the most powerful early stories, the difference between the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David, on outside appearances, they were both amazing. In fact, Saul was probably even better. He was tall and handsome and recognized as a great warrior. David's a little on the shorter side, not as tested. He's a, he's a younger guy, attractive still. But they're both really good on the outside. But why does King Saul end up being destroyed and end up being a total failure as a king? And why does David end up being the one who is the heritage all the way that Jesus is the son of David? Because even if you look at their bad stuff, what did King Saul do? Well, he felt some peer pressure and he offered a sacrifice to God when the priest was supposed to do it, when he was under the pressure to do so, when the whole crowd was kind of waiting and the priest Samuel was late. That's what Saul mostly did wrong. What did David do wrong? 
at the height of his power, sitting up on his roof, he saw somebody else's wife, brought her into his house, got her pregnant. Then when he was afraid of getting found out, he killed her husband in a very deceptive and, and wimpy way and tried to cover the whole thing up. So on the outside, <clears throat> who's actually worse? David. But what is the difference between Saul and David that God really sees? He does care about outside, and, and the consequences of what David did never left him. He spent the next de several decades suffering the consequences of that utterly wrong thing that he did with his own children and other things. But, but what was the difference between Saul and David, man? It was their heart. That David, how is David described? That he was a man after God's own heart. So the bad news is that God sees and cares about your heart this morning. He knows what's going on in your lust, in your pride, in your anger. He knows what's going on. That's the bad news is. You might be a Saul character who looks great on the outside. He knows that. That's the bad news. The good news is God sees and cares about our hearts. And he wants to make you a man, a new man on the inside. He wants to make you, and he can, and he's, he looks upon you with a smiling face and is glad to forgive you and transform you in the inner person. That's the biggest point of the Sermon on the Mount, is that he's inviting us to start paying attention to the narrow way. The narrow way is not do a bunch of more external stuff. The narrow way is not, I feel guilty, I feel shame, I failed, so I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to come to every man challenge. I'm going to come to everything else. Every time the church is open, I'm going to be here. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do, that's, I mean, those are great things to do because those are means of grace in your life. But the response to your brokenness and your sin and your shame and your embarrassment that we all have, men, because once you start looking inside, it's not a pretty scene. Once you start being really honest and see what's inside of you, it's not, it's not a happy result. But the response to that is not, I'm just going to work harder and just do more external stuff. The response that has got to be, God sees and cares about my inner person, and I want the work to start there. So many years ago, when my, our kids were little, like many of you, I hope this is still going on. I, we had a bunch of kids here in soccer right over on those fields, right? And I remember so distinctly uh, something that happened. I was there with um, my kids and a bunch of soccer moms as well, waiting for our kids. And I, and I was... I was teaching, I still do, but in those days I was teaching a Bible class at Christian Educational Consortium. And, and as a Protestant, I don't believe in purgatory, but I would say that if there is a Protestant purgatory, it's teaching 25 middle schoolers Bible uh, every week. And that was my experience. And I did that for several years. And I remember I had a bunch of these, the, some of the same kids were on the soccer team. And I remember being along the sidelines and being with a bunch of moms and some of the dads there. And in the class, I had just taught about uh, Genesis 1 to these junior high or these middle school boys. And I had talked about all the different sort of ways people have read Genesis 1. And, and I thought the class went great. They're really engaged. Well, imagine my chagrin when I hear that a bunch of these same moms, especially, and dads 
were talking among themselves and all were upset with me about some of the things I'd said and the ways, ways I'd said it about Genesis 1. And of course, from the ever reliable source of middle school boys, you know, I'm sure they exactly got all the nuance of what I was saying, right? And repeated it to their mothers. But, but imagine how angry I was when I heard that they were all talking with each other and several, I heard that several of them were upset with me. I thought, what the heck? All right. I am Dr. Frickin' Pennington, right? I mean, all these things, you know, they're, they're upset with me, and none of them, I knew these people. I'm there on the sidelines with them. None of them came to me and said, hey, we're, can we talk about what happened? No, I just hear that they're, like, talking with each other. So I sit down on my computer. I'm going to write them and just destroy them on email. Matthew 18, if someone's upset, you need to go to them yourself. You know, I'm typing all these, you know, Bible verses and everything. Well, my my wife walks behind me and looks over my shoulder and says, I don't think you should probably send that email, (laughs) which was great. And so I didn't. So I thought, you know, you're right, of course. Blasting them is not the way. I'm going to take the low road. I'm going to take the, that is not the low road, like undercut them, but I'm going to take the humble way. And so I just wrote an apology. I'm just, I'm just going to write them and I'd say, hey, I'm really, I heard that some of you are upset. Let me explain what I meant. I'm really sorry for any way I miscommunicated. I brought the kids donuts the next week, whatever it was, you know. And so I, I was very proud of myself. I thought, okay, I did the right thing. I didn't blast them. I kept my integrity. I took the humble waves. Great. But then I noticed over the next several days that I was still angry about it. And I was still upset about it. And, I, and all, you know, in the theater starring Jonathan Pennington that was in my mind, you know, where I'm the star of every scene, you know, I had all these amazing comebacks, and I'm still bitter about that they did this. And I realized, you know what? While I did the right thing externally, which was good, I'm glad I did the right thing externally to them, God wanted to do a deeper work in my heart than just doing the right thing. He wanted me to start looking inside and saying, why is it so important that everybody thinks you're amazing? Why is it so upsetting to you that if anybody would dare disagree with you or misrepresent you? What's going on inside of me where God wants to do a deeper work? I'm glad I did the right thing externally because it's better to do the right thing externally than the wrong thing. But God wants to do something in my inner person. And men, God sees and cares about your hearts and wants to do a deeper and newer work. That's the narrow way that he sees and cares about. Let me pray for us. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you are very kind and that you look upon us with a smiling face and you know, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know that we're broken. You know that our lives are very mixed. And I pray for my brothers here that you would now do a deeper work in them by the Spirit. Make them cleaner and stronger and, and pure in heart by the work of your Holy Spirit. And I pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.